You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Doc G, and today we're going to earn and invest in Latinx finance with Diego Corzo and Jen Hemphill. Today we are going to talk about being different. As my in-laws stood next to President Obama and prepared for the picture, I thought about how far they had come. From sharing a two-bedroom apartment with three young kids to living in one of the most affluent neighborhoods in America, it had been a wild and bumpy ride that led to that unfathomable meeting in the Oval Office. A hard ride. They had scratched and clawed their way, never earning more than average Americans. Their children collectively held multiple undergraduate and graduate degrees. They had pursued the American dream, safety, abundance, education, freedom. Yet after all this time, after living more decades in the United States than their country of origin, they still carried with them their own cultural identity. Americans, yet different. As of 2018, the Census Bureau estimated that there are almost 60 million Hispanics living in the United States, about 18% of the overall population. Citizens dreamers, undocumented. Like my in-laws, they carry the American dream in their bosoms with equal fidelity, yet their genetics, heritage, skills, hopes, culture, and dreams are also unique. They live economic lives, take on debt, work, side hustle, and strive for financial stability. Citizens, dreamers, undocumented. Americans, yet different. Jen Hemphill is a military spouse and proud bilingual Latina. She helps the busy, career-oriented woman become the queen of her money and love her dinero more. She is a money confidence coach and an accredited financial counselor, author, speaker, and hosts the Her Dinero Matters podcast. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you for so much for having me. And that was such a beautiful recap of what you said. It encompasses so much for me, and I love it. Thank you. Well, I am so happy to have you on. And I have to tell you already, you know, in the wording of your introduction, I wasn't supposed to say queen. I was supposed to say reina, but I knew that I would mess up the R. So (laughs) I made up for it here though, right? Absolutely. Diego Corzo is a Forbes featured millennial real estate entrepreneur, investor, mentor, and TEDx speaker. Diego was born in Lima, Peru and moved to the United States with his family when he was nine years old. Diego graduated top 1% from Florida State University with two bachelor's degrees in less than four years. Diego, welcome back to the show. You were with us before, weren't you? Yes, and I'm very happy to be back. 
Yeah, you were on the house hacking episode, if I remember correctly. Yes, with Craig and, and a few others. It was awesome. Yeah, it was a good time. It was definitely one of our more downloaded episodes. So I, see, I, I knew already just having you back on was a good idea. <laughs> Perfect. Well, happy to be here. All right. Well, let's get into it. Jen, let's first start with you. Tell us a little bit about your family story. Where are you from? Where are your parents from? When did they come to the United States? Okay. So I was born in Bogota, Colombia. And I am, you mentioned in your introduction about different. And where I'm different is I was born in Bogota, Colombia. My dad is the gringo. So this was back in the late 70s, early 80s, where in Colombia at that time, he stuck out six foot man, which was tall at that time, red hair, really white freckles. I was born an American citizen, which is, it's unlike many of my Hispanic brothers and sisters here in the U.S. So I didn't immigrate to the U.S., but rather I moved. And I moved when I was eight years old. So I've been in the United States for, I don't know how many years, let's not count. (laughs) (laughs) But really, I came from a background of both very hardworking parents. Both my parents were first generation in college, right? So they were the first ones to be educated in college. And they came from very humble backgrounds. And really, when we were living in Colombia, being that my dad was an American. And at that time in the 70s and 80s, yes, I'm aging myself, but I'm in my proud 40s, gosh darn it. And it was a time of insecurity, those times. And things have changed. It was a time where things were rough economically. And even though my parents were educated, my dad had a really hard time finding jobs. So he had to make ends by baking, by pumping gas, for different things like that. They did what they had to do, right? So I really had a different sense of what I've seen and appreciation because there was a time where before they even decided to move to the U.S. where they decided we're going to build a house. And they built the house outside in the outskirts of Bogota in a small town of Tocancipa, which at that time it was very underdeveloped, meaning You had to have money to make sure that the electricity was put up. So we were living without electricity. So I've lived a life not because of poverty, but because of the underdevelopment. So I was able to experience the living with candles and then some sort of kerosene lamps and washing clothes by hand. I've experienced that. So it has given me a different appreciation of life before I came to the U.S., Diego, contrast what Jen is saying with your upbringing. I know you came from Peru, but you didn't come as a citizen. How old were you? And and tell us a little bit about your family situation at the time. Yeah, so I came to the United States from Peru when I was nine years old. We arrived to Florida. And the reasons why my parents left in 1999 was because my dad, he couldn't find a job anywhere. And my dad had tried to open up a restaurant. It failed. And at that point, that was when they decided, okay, we have to do something else. By this point too, my mom's car had just gotten stolen a few months prior. At like two various times, somebody came behind her with a knife and stole her purse two weeks later with a gun. So she's like, all right, we got to go. So that's when we decided to move to the States. We came here with a tourist visa. And after six months, we decided to overstay it. And that's when the four of us 
became undocumented. And now I am what people call, what Congress calls a dreamer. And I am part of the DACA program. So I grew up with a few challenges of not being able to drive, not being able to work. I always found a way, right? I believe that the U.S. is the land of opportunities. And fast forward a few years later, I was able to participate in the DACA program when I turned 22 years old. And uh, now I'm 29 and I live in Austin, Texas. Can you tell us a little bit about the DACA program? I know that people who fall under that ruling call themselves dreamers, but what was DACA? Yeah, the DACA program was an executive order that Obama created in 2012. And that program will allow the dreamers that came before, I believe it was 2008 or something, that will allow them to give them their driver's license, a work permit, and a social security. So that will allow people that have graduated high school, maybe gone into college, the opportunity to finally put it to work, pay taxes, and just try to be Americans, right? Just like all of my friends. So I'm going to transition, Jen, a little bit here in the conversation. As I was looking at your podcast and your blog in preparation for this interview, I had a little question about your branding that I think really sums up maybe the crux of the issue of what it's like to be Latino in the United States and to talk about money and personal finance. You started your platform by calling it Her Money Matters, right? And your first podcast was Her Money Matters, and you wrote a book titled Her Money Matters. Correct. And then you decided to start a sister podcast called Su Dinero Importa. Mm-hmm. which had more of a Spanish flair. You, you had some episodes that were completely in Spanish, some that were Spanglish, some that were more English. And then at some point you decided to merge both brands together and have your current podcast now called Her Dinero Matters. That to me is a good story of what it must feel like to have both of these identities. You talked about your father you know, the redhead with freckles and your mother from Bogota, Colombia. What was going on with the branding? And more importantly, what was the internal struggle happening there? Basically, when I started, I didn't really think of, and I don't know why, but I didn't think of, I think it was, I didn't want to... I don't know if stand out is the correct word, but I didn't want to use Latina as an advantage, right? So that was how I was perceiving it. And then as I went on and as I, and I really struggled in terms of, because what I've struggled with, with all my life, I don't fit in either country. Here, I'm not from here. And I think it's partly, I'm a military spouse. I've moved all over. So I tend to acquire accents of the different, of the different states as well. And because I've been speaking English since I was eight years old. So I'd like to think that I have good English. Uh, sometimes I question myself, but others <laughs> do that too. So here I get the question of where are you from, right? Where, you know, automatically you speak differently. Where are you from? But in Colombia or in, in Diego's probably questioning, oh my goodness, I didn't think she was Latina. So in other countries, whether by my complexion or in other Latin American countries, it's I'm not Latina enough. 
So there is that struggle of that identity. So where in the world do I fit in? So it's taken me a long time to just kind of accept myself. I really relate more to the Latina side. I really feel more of that side. But then I have a lot of respect, obviously, for my father's uh, culture as well. So with the podcast, I realized as you know, doing the coaching and, and coaching my clients and doing uh, speaking engagements, I realized that there was still a need. There was a, there's a lot of financial podcasts out there for women, for men, for a mix, for uh, financial independence and so forth. But there wasn't really a podcast speaking to Latinas and personal finance. So I wanted it really to fill that gap. One, because of the gender wage gap. It's the biggest amongst the Latinas. We are behind and in between all the ethnicities. And because the second part was I wanted to create a platform where I showcase Latinas to show the talent, the diverse talent that there is in the Latina culture, in the Latino community, because there's so many different stereotypes. And I felt like if I can't solve the problem or anything, I can't solve the gender wage gap. But if I'm able to have a platform to showcase the Latinas, show their talents, what's out there, I think others can really realize what we're about, as well as get Latinas talking about money, get more confident. Like my big key is getting confident because the how-to on money, saving more, spending less, that's the easy part. The hard part is what's in between, <laughs> is what's in between the two ears. And so that's where my mission is, is to get them to talk about money. And one of my big things on my podcast is talk about our money stories, how we grew up, what we saw, what we heard. Because I realized in my own personal journey, that had a huge, huge impact into my adulthood. I was good with money, but 10 years into my marriage, I was realizing we were still in debt. We were borrowing from our 401k and we continue to deplete our emergency savings. So I knew there was something more to that. Why personal finance? Was that something that brought out that identity bifurcation you had between the Caucasian and the Latina? It was, I think, a little bit of seeing my parents struggle with money, as well as when we moved to the U.S., they had to start over in terms financially, career-wise, even though they had the education, it was literally starting over. It was partially that and knowing that and hearing a lot of, we don't have the money, we can't afford this. I wanted to change that for when I became an adult. But the other part of this is when I met my husband, I was thrown into the becoming a military spouse, moving all over, but I wanted to have a career as well as being able to stay at home with my two boys. That was really, really important just because I saw my parents work so hard that they weren't at home. And because of my husband's job taking him away a lot, I wanted to make sure that there was that one parent that was available at all times. So that was really, really important to me. So it was twofold. Yes, the struggle that I saw early on with my parents and me not wanting to go through that. But the second part was being able to create a career that was mobile and I can take with me so I can have my cake and eat it too. Work and be at home with my boys. Diego, Jen mentions that when her family came to the United States, it was like starting over. And I listened to your TEDx talk. You titled it, Can the American Dream Be Achieved If You Are Not an American Citizen? What does the American dream mean to Latino immigrants? 
I feel, and it doesn't have to be for Latino immigrants, but all immigrants really, it just, for, for us, it, it is that we come to the United States hungry. We come here, when we start at zero, the only way that we can go is up. Where if, I'm, if I compare myself with my millennial friends that are American, even though we started in, in like after college in our jobs and stuff like that, they never really, or at least most of them really didn't start at zero. Where the way, for example, that I invested with roommates and stuff like that, some of my friends will say, no, I will never do that. But when we started from zero, my parents, my brother and I, we moved it into my aunt's house. And we lived in the one bedroom, like in her bedroom with two other aunts in the other bedrooms and stuff like that for two to three months until my parents were able to find a job and stuff like that. So it's sort of like by us starting with zero, we, my parents, we came in here with $8,000 that will basically help us put me through school and some immigration documents that we needed to get to buy a car and stuff like that. But really to answer your question on, on the, on the immigrant side is like, we're just hungry. And I feel like we see the U S as a land of opportunity and we just have to continue to pursue that no matter, no matter what the situation is, because I feel like the resources are there. We just have to work hard enough to make it. As I was thinking about this conversation, Diego, I keep finding myself trying to parse out whether your story specifically is an immigrant story, quote unquote, or is a Latino immigrant story. And I have to tell you, it's hard to separate the two, Mm -hmm. maybe because that's your unique story. But it does make me wonder if coming to the United States from someone with a Hispanic background is different. Certainly, you probably bring your own culture, your own family, your own beliefs. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what you're talking about sounds very similar to immigrants from all sorts of places. My parent-in-laws, who I mentioned in the introduction, came from Iran, actually. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of similarities there. Do you see a specific identity to the Latino immigrant that's different? To the Latino immigrant, I would say the only thing that I would say would be the skin color. But really, but like brown, but at the end of the day, Latinos come in all colors. At the end of the day is what, what I see different from somebody that comes from Europe, Africa, Asia, or the Latinos is just maybe the place that we came from, but we all come pursuing something. And what's great about it too, is that we bring our culture right? And also, it, it's like a good thing, right? That, that, that we bring our culture. But also, sometimes I feel like some people might feel a shock, depending at what age you come to the United States. I feel like for my parents to learn a new language at age 30, 33, 34, it's completely different in learning a new language at age nine when I came. Right. So depending, depending on the age, depending on where you, where you come from, I feel like we just, we face the same, the same challenges. There might be more Latino, like places where we can speak Spanish than maybe somebody that comes from, let's say, I don't know, like Pakistan or um, like Nigeria or something. But overall, I feel like it is the story. Right. And that's why too, in my TEDx talk, I ended with I am an American without papers 
it's because after me living here for all these years, me being here now 20 years, I feel like I am an, an American by growing up here. It's just that I don't have my papers. And Jenna, it's kind of silly to look at the Hispanic or Latino culture as a monolith, right? There are many, many countries that people come from. So even putting people in that category may not say a lot about their true culture, where they're from, above and beyond certain similarities, including the language, right? Right, right. Oh, there, and there's so many differences within the Latino culture. We were speaking earlier, we lived in Peru and Lima for a couple of years because of the military and we speak Spanish, but are sometimes they laughed at what I, my requests were because the words were completely different meaning. We moved there when it was summer, their time, and we were in a hotel and we were waiting for our household goods. And I went downstairs because I was really tired of eating the restaurant food. Plus I was trying to be a little bit frugal and save that money. And I went and requested una estufa. And this is the summertime. So Diego's probably understanding me. And una estufa is just, just a small stove. But for Peruvians, una estufa is a heater. So you could have think I'm here in the hotel asking for a heater or what they think is a heater. And I was really just asking for it. So those type of things are, are definitely different. And I think what's important to understand, and, and it does go to other cultures or to other countries that immigrate to the U.S., but specifically with the, the, the Hispanic culture, especially because it is so big in the U.S., we have to realize the ne- different needs of the different subgroups. Like, for example, I moved and I was already an American citizen. Diego moved. He was, he's uh, undocumented status or in the DACA program. There's the first generation, second generation Hispanic Americans. Their needs are different. Their understanding of the financial system is also different. And I think that's important to really understand because I've, I've taught some workshops, some financial education workshops for more in immigrants, recent recent immigrants. So how I teach those workshops is different than how I teach maybe other Latino groups because they don't, maybe don't understand the system. So I think that's, we have to really take a step back when we teach whether Hispanic Americans or Hispanics and really have an awareness of that. It also seems to me that there's not just awareness of country of origin, but also gender. You mentioned this before, and I noted that in your first episode of Su Dinero Importa, you mentioned one of the main reasons for wanting to do the sister podcast was the gender pay gap. And you had mentioned some numbers. I don't know if you know them off the top of your head, but so being female means that you get paid less, but being Latina Right. It's even worse. It's about 54 cents or 51 cents to the dollar, right? But what is different, what's interesting, and I look at statistics a little different because you've got to take statistics to their face value, right? So when you think of Latinas making less, it could be, yes, the inequalities of pay, right? But you also have to look at in our culture and and other, you know, cultures outside of the United States, the value system of taking care of family. So for example, I pause my career to take care of my kids. 
they may pause their career or they may be not starting a career because of family. Those things also impact those statistics. Obviously, their educational, you know, their education status, right? Where some may be really well educated, some not. So there's different factors that I think, but there is definitely that inequality. But we also have that stereotype of what Latinas do for work, right? Diego, Jen is mentioning inequalities and In your TEDx talk, you talk a lot about some of the things that weren't available to you as a dreamer that normal people, normal U.S. citizens would have no problem with. For instance, you weren't able to get a driver's license. So when you had a business meeting, you had to hop on your bike in the middle of summer and drive four miles and bring a change of clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Where did the drive for you come from to persist in all this? The the drive came from seeing the sacrifices that my parents did so that they could give my brother and I a better future. For example, my mom, she hasn't been able to see her dad in now over 20 years. And that's always, for me, it's always like that strong why, like even till now, now, now I'm 29 and even till now I, I'm still like, hey, these are the reasons, these are the reasons why I keep on doing what I'm doing. And I feel like by having that why, that's why I've been able to push through some things where other people may have said, you know what, this is too hard. I don't want to pursue this or like, oh, why me? It's like, no, I am going to find a way to make it happen no matter what. And that's always been my, my mindset because I always remember back to where to, to just the sacrifices that, that my parents have done throughout the, throughout the years of not taking days off, of working at a restaurant from like 11 a.m. or 10 a.m. to like three in the morning or five in the morning, and then doing it again on Saturday from like 10 a.m. to working 3 a.m. in the morning. So that, that for me has been my, my why all of these years. Yeah, I love it in your talk that you say, if the door of opportunity closes, I go through the window. And that's exactly Exactly. to me what you're describing is this idea that I will find a way to make it work. Yeah. Regardless. Yeah, for sure. So Jen, I want to get a little more granular. You talked about the gender pay gap. We talked with Diego a little bit about the difficulties of being a dreamer. What do you think are the top financial issues for Latinos in America today? Obviously, the gender pay gap is one of them. For one is like, and all humans all throughout the world is not talking about money. I think that is number one. I think another one is really, I think it's the values. So I was, they didn't come on my show, my, my parents. So I was really curious because one of the things that I focus on, as I mentioned, is our money stories. So I wanted to talk to them about their own money story. So it was really a fantastic conversation, which I wish they would have let me, <laughs> they, uh, you know, t- really had on the podcast, but really the observations that I made was my when my dad was growing up and I was asking him about his money story he was taught uh, about insur- you know the importance of insurance and having a savings account my mom was taught about to survive so that's a whole different ball game and for her is to have stability which equated to having a house 
So I think that's why it was so important for her to have that house, build that house, because that for her was survival or the stability, but it was the, those differences and the values. And I can't speak for all, that's just my mom, but I think, I think to an extent, maybe a good portion of Hispanics or Latin, Latinos or Latinx is about that just because we come from countries where in the US let's 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 be real there's a lot of things that we take for granted there's a lot of convenience where maybe it's changing in Latin American countries now where that convenience hasn't always been there right so we have to work more but i think it's the values and how we see money is a little different just based on my own talks with my parents. But that I think that, and then really the other part is really having an understanding of the financial system here. And that's going to vary from the different subgroups, as I mentioned. I know one of the pet peeves that I have in those workshops that I mentioned that I have taught for more recent immigrants is that they go to the bank, let's say they go to the bank and they tell them they need to build a credit perfect. I'm good there. And they tell them they need to charge some money on the credit card and they just need to keep a balance, just pay the minimum a balance. That drives me nuts because they can still pay off the complete balance and still build their credit. So it's things like that. They're, they're not fully taught well that. So it's just that lack of understanding and it's not their fault. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. You have to learn it. But if you're not taught correctly, what are you to do, right? You can't blame anybody. So I think those for me are, are the three main things. Diego, when you came to the United States, did your parents understand the economic system here? Did they have a pretty good grasp of personal finance in, in the United States? I would say, so my parents, they didn't have the grasp of investing into properties, investing into creating a business, like a large business a large company, but my parents have always been more in the entrepreneurial side. So for example, right now, my parents own two Peruvian restaurants, which is more like a mom and pops thing. But now fast forward, like 10 years of them owning those restaurants. Now my dad can take off for whenever time he wants. And, and so can my mom. But really in the beginning, it was more of the survival, like how can we save money in the beginning where we knew that. So when I was like nine, 10 years old, I remember that my mom, even though it would take in us like 20 minutes faster by taking the toll road, she's like, Diego, I cannot take the toll road. Like we cannot, like we need the 75 cents, like small things like that. But then years later, I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then I tell my dad about investing in real estate and about the mindset, right? So this is something that's interesting too, is our generation, whether it's the dreamers or the first generation, I feel like we are put also in the shoes of teaching our parents the American way if we are also taught, right? And what's interesting too, is that as kids, the dreamers and well, just the people that come here as kids, when we learn our language, when, when we begin to learn English, we go through adulthood or we begin to learn or share things faster or become aware of things faster than 
other people because we are the ones that are translating bank statements. We are translating things from the doctors, things from the schools, which is something that my American friends would have never have to translate, right? I'm, I'm at Bank of America with, with my parents opening up a credit card and I'm the one that's translating and I'm 11 years old. So it's sort, of, it's sort of those things, but I feel like with the right education, for example, that I got, I was able to teach my parents. And now too, my dad owns like 12 rental properties. So it's like, it, it's cool, right? And he took action just based on what I've learned. And fortunately, I have a really great relationship with my parents. Like it's, it's amazing. And I feel like by me teaching them that aspect they taught me the work ethic. They taught me the perseverance. They taught me all of that. But now I am teaching them how they can make their money work for them. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Diego and Jen discussed how growing up Latino influenced their outlook on finances. After the break, we delve into what they were able to teach their parents. But first... I wanted to talk a little bit about how we form community here at Earn and Invest. Of course, you guys know about the Facebook group. That is facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. You guys have been there before. You've heard me talk about it. But there are also other ways in which we build community. Specifically, there are other ways in which I get in to interact with all of you guys. The one thing I don't love about the podcast is it's a one-way discussion. You hear me or my guests but on the podcast itself, we don't get to hear from you guys directly. Thankfully, there are other ways you can interact with me or we all can interact together. The Facebook group is one of them. The other is through leaving a review, something like at iTunes, Apple Podcasts. If you go there and tell us what you think of the podcast, it's a nice way of starting a conversation between you guys and me. Because ultimately, it's no fun if I'm just talking out to the world or if my guests are. It's much better if we're talking to each other. Another really cool way people engage is they send me emails. You can do that by writing me at docg at diversify.com. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. Or if you just go to the episode webpage, there's a contact us place where you can go ahead and write us an email. And in fact, someone did recently, Paul H., Thank you for sending me an email. He said, I've fairly recently come across the Earn and Invest podcast and I'm really enjoying it. I appreciate the level of research and work you put into both set the stage for your interviews and ask really insightful questions. I also love the way you are happy to explore both sides of an argument rather than repeating the perceived financial independence wisdom of the day. First of all, Paul, thank you for writing me and letting me know how you feel. It's really great to get feedback, to hear what you like and don't like about the show. A few things you mentioned, Paul, it's really important to me to get to know my guests very well. And in fact, I want to come to each episode, I want to come to each interview very well prepared because I don't want to just have the typical conversation that you hear everywhere else. I want a deeper, more rich conversation. I want that conversation to be next level. The way we get there is that I do try to prepare and learn a lot about my guests before I actually sit down to have a discussion with them. I think that brings a better conversation to the table and provides more of what everyone really wants to hear. And so, yeah, I do prep for these episodes. I spend a few hours looking at each panel member 
or looking at who I'm going to interview for that day. And I try to craft a conversation that both brings out the best in that guest, but also is exciting and fun for everyone listening. So it's really important to me. I spend a lot of time doing it. And Paul, thank you for noticing. Again, if you want to get in touch with me, you can write me at docg at diversify.com. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. Or go to the Earn and Invest episode page. That's earnandinvest.com. Or, of course, on Facebook. I'd love to hear from you guys in any of these manners. And I think ultimately it makes the podcast better for all of us. So keep sending me your emails and I'll do my best to respond right away. Thanks. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week. These are chef prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
Now back to the show. Jen, is what Diego saying make a lot of sense to you? It sounds like that first generation is really good with survival and frugality, but maybe has trouble making that next step. Yes, I agree. And it's interesting because my dad, being American, he knew the system. My mom, very educated, but she likes to spend that money. (laughs) And she also still to this day, again, how impactful your money story and your upbringing is. She hasn't retired. My dad retired years ago and she hasn't retired for that fear of not having enough money and they've been able to save well. And, but there, because my dad had some health problems. So she was worried about that. The doctor's bill, you know, todavía no, todavía not yet, not yet because she was afraid, Hey, we need that money to pay the doctor's bills. But yet I'm thinking you have enough, right? But again, it's just that upbringing of we can't afford it. We don't have the money. And so it's, it's really interesting, the different perspectives and the different perceptions that my parents have. Were these things you ever talked about, especially when you were little? Did you have those conversations? I'm especially interested no. with your mother. Yeah. No, no. My mom, yeah, she does not like talking about money still to this day. I think it's really still a trigger point for her based on her upbringing. Just because things were taken away, her dad passed when she was very little. Um, Mi abuelita, my grandmother, uh, literally had to raise three kids, a single mom, and I sewing. She she was a seamstress, and that's how she made things do, or, or really survived. And so that that had a lot of definitely a lot of impact. My dad, and it's interesting because. And when I was in high school, I'll never forget, he sat me down to have the talk. And not that talk, but the money talk. They had that (laughs) other talk another time with my brother out of all things. Like, anyways, side note. So he sat me down to talk about a little bit about money. And it was interesting because it was just some simple things, how to balance a checkbook, uh, how you how not to be afraid of using the credit card as long as you pay it in full and just how to be really responsible with money. So I remember that had an that was a really impactful conversation for me. And then years later they come to me when I really got into the personal finance books. This is way before I I started the business, but when I really got into the personal finance books, they noticed that I was changing how we were managing money. Uh, my husband and I and they were asking me for advice. I'm like, hold up that. (laughs) You're the one that helped me. I have to thank you because you really opened up my eyes to really educate myself on personal finance. So it's really interesting. Diego, do you remember having those conversations as a kid? Did you guys talk about money when you were young? We did, but it wasn't to, we did it in a way that we managed how much money is coming in and how much is coming out. And we knew that we weren't going to get into debt. At least that was my perception that no matter what we needed to spend, what we had coming in, but it wasn't anything into specifics like, Hey, you need to have three bank accounts, one for saving for the long term, one for short term or anything like that. It was more, you need to keep a balance. You need to know your numbers and save some money. I think it says something about both of your parents 
That's really interesting that as they saw your generation grow and get smart about money, that they tracked back to you guys and asked for advice. Are we seeing a lot of that, Jen, in the community where the older immigrants are looking at their children and saying, okay, now you guys understand it. You're Americans. Tell us what to do. I think I had this call with a listener because I really like to connect with my listeners. And she was like super pumped about some things that she had implemented that she learned on the podcast. And then she really, she's like, I've been talking to my parents and, and telling them to do this or that. And I asked them, okay, because I had a uh, an episode on talking to your parents about money and not necessarily specifically Latino parents, but just the importance of really having an understanding of planning for the future, right? And so I don't know if it was based on that episode, but she's like, I had, you know, talked to my parents and I asked them, okay, where are you at with retirement and savings? Oh yeah, we have the savings. Where? Oh, it's, it, it really wasn't invested. Long story short. It was, wasn't really a current crew in any interest or anything. So she was wanting to look for tools and wanted resources to really take back to her parents, but in, in, in Espanol. So the CFPV has a really some really good resources all in Spanish that I thought she could take back. So I'm seeing that they're wanting to take that information because they're excited. They're like, yes, I'm making progress. I'm doing all these things. They're having that confidence. And then they want to take that knowledge and relay that to their parents, which is really, I love it. I love that excitement. It seems from this conversation, what I'm getting is that the Latinx Hispanic experience with money is really very similar to the general immigrant experience with money, which makes sense because when we look at what we call Hispanic people, we're really talking about people from many different countries in many different parts of the world. There's this push in the first generation for survivorship and the second generation who either moved here, or at least as the children of immigrants, learns a little bit more about the complex relationship between business and entrepreneurship and investing. You guys, I believe, are part of the vanguard of people who are talking about personal finance from this perspective. Do you hear a lot of Hispanic voices out there discussing personal finance? I'll start with you, Diego. Are you seeing anyone who looks or sounds like you in this community? I have to think maybe like I've only seen a few people personally uh, whenever I go to a, to events like for, for example, at where we met at FinCon, there were probably like three or four other Latinos that I met there that were, that either had a blog or some, some, something about the Latino community. I bet you that there are out there. I just haven't met them yet. And Jen, I, I know you're at They're least one out of there. Yeah, Diego, you, were... you missed the meetup. We had 30 plus Latinos in the room. So oh, it man. is. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely growing. I see it. And it's interesting because when I decided to do the Herding Edo Matters, I, you know, or actually when I started Soothing Edo Importa and I was looking to see what was out there for women and personal finance and Latinas and I wasn't seeing it. And then it's interesting how things work because I published the episode and then I started to see some and I'm like, oh, they are there. Well, good, because we can't do it alone, right? There's so much work to do. We need more people, Latin, you know, men, women, all of the, you know, all the above uh, to, really, to really help us because with each 
story, with each uh, experience, we're touching more lives. And I think that's really important because Diego may tell the person next to him that they need to budget this way and that or pay their debt in this way. And might tell them, might tell them the same thing, but how my, I relay my message is maybe a little different. But they might resonate with more with what Diego said. And even though we said the exact same thing, just in different ways because of our story, right? I think that's really important. That's why we need more Latinos in the space. I agree 100% with you. Yeah. I've, I've, been, on, uh, I've been on a podcast where there's, there, I got a bunch of people on, on Instagram who said, it's like, Diego, you were one of the first Latinos that ever shared their story on this podcast. Your story it just makes so much sense for me. And I just wanted to connect with you. I probably got like at least 30 messages, at least 30 or 50 of all of that. And I was like, wow, there's definitely like this, my story needs to continue to be shared. And not just my story, but the Latino immigrant story too, because I feel like there's, there's a lot of people because of their situation too. Like as we know, right, there might be like over 11 million undocumented immigrants, there's over 2 million dreamers and DACA recipients and all of that stuff. And I feel like sometimes we don't share our stories because we're just afraid, or even not me, but like about my mom or my grandparents or whatever. So there's still like that fear of, okay, I'm just going to share my story because it needs to be told. One of the things I say about this podcast and why I like having episodes like this is if left on my own, I tend to find and listen to people who look and sound exactly like me. I'm not proud of this. It is what it is. Now, being a middle-aged Caucasian professional male, it was very easy for me to find role models and platforms to learn about personal finance. I can't imagine what it would have been like if I had gone looking and I couldn't find anyone who looked, sounded, or whose experience was anything like mine. So I imagine, Jen, when you have these meetups or when you start a podcast and you speak in Spanish and you talk about these issues, that people who look and sound like you are just so happy to have someone they can relate to. Absolutely. I get so much great feedback on that. And there, because finally, something for Latinas and even for the Latinas, I think it's important to, because one group that within the Latinos that we didn't speak about, the Latinos that have been established that may not speak Spanish, but they're Latina or they're Latinos. And I think that's an important, and that's really a part of my podcast is drawing those because they, in my experience, they feel left out because it's not in the sense of, well, people assume we speak Spanish, right? Because we're Latinos, right? But yeah, so I, I get a, a lot of lot of feedback because in my podcast, even though now it's primarily in English, but it's really to that woman that is like me, that she might be hanging out with her friends and she's speaking English and all of a sudden she can't think of the word in English. So she throws out some Spanish, but we understand each other. And that's how we roll in the podcast because that's, I want it to be conversational and, and relatable and not a really stuffy conversation where people 
where it's not approachable, where I'm not approachable, where they don't have that trust in me and I want them to have that trust in me. And I feel like I've achieved that. That's the, the feedback I get. So it's really, really rewarding to hear that because I feel like finally, because it's business is all evolving, you know, all, you know, you're always evolving. And I feel like, okay, this is where I need to be. That sense I really felt when I listened to your first episode of Sue Dinero and Porta, when you talked about the different episodes and how some would probably be all in English and some would be all in Spanish and a bunch of them would be in a mix of English and Spanish. And I really got that sense that you were pulling in everyone who could relate regardless of the language. Uh, And that was really abundantly clear. It was very refreshing to listen to. Okay, good. So Diego, I feel like we can't end this conversation without at least asking what is going to happen to the dreamers? What do you think is going to happen to DACA? Man, that is and that is a good question. The Supreme Court heard a couple of the cases about the DACA program where whether it's going to be terminated or not. I was at the I was outside the Supreme Court. I was I participated I was in the background of a press conference with Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. I was I'm pretty active in the dreamer community and I am hopeful that the Supreme Court will make a decision that will help Congress act and find a path for us so that we can become Americans. I personally don't care if it's in 5, 10, 15 years for to till we actually become Americans. I just want to have the opportunity to go back to Peru and see my family and see my grandpa. That's really all I care about. But really, I am hopeful that Congress will find a solution with the decision that the Supreme Court will make. Yeah, I think it's important to note that a lot of those dreamers are now not just dreamers, they're achievers. A lot of them, like you, have found their version of the American dream and are living it. And it's always sad when politics gets in the way of life. And yeah, this is one of yeah. those cases where people are pushing ahead and achieving and doing and creating. And thank God, at least at this point, it's not stopping them from. And we'll have to hope that there's a resolution soon. Yeah, because I'm a big believer that we can even accomplish more than than we have already have done with DACA just by allowing us like for me to get to get started investing in real estate in the beginning when DACA first came out lenders were not giving loans because they they had no idea what DACA was. They're like, what is this, right? And so I feel like once we do get our green cards or some kind of some kind of paperwork, I feel like we will be able to accomplish a lot more because we're not going to have the fear of like, hey, what happens if this does get taken away or what happens if I cannot renew it? And that fear does does put a stop to a lot of people. I think that's a great way to end the podcast. But before we go, I want to give you each a chance to tell us what's up next in your life and where we can find you. Jen, let's start with you. What is up next in your life and where can we find you? What is up next in my life is my first podcast live event in December here in December. September (laughs) here in DC. And you can find me over at jenhemphill.com. The most Latina name ever. (laughs) Where is that live event going to be? Here in DC. 
And is it is it just you or are you doing it's in collaboration a, with someone else? Just me, but I'm going, the idea is to interview a local Latina influencer here in the DC area and create an experience to help the attendees that's where my accent, I think, just came out to uh, help the attendees become reinas of their money. And you can find me over at jenhemphill.com. And Diego, what's up next in your life and where can we find you? What is up next in my life? So I am working on a new project, a new brand called ratrace2fi.com. And we're basically teaching people from all walks of life, mostly Latinos, because that, that, that actually has been a lot of the people that have been interested in that. But we're basically helping teaching people how they can get out of the rat race to get financial independence through real estate. And they can find out more about that at ratrace2fi.com or by going to my website, diegocorzo.com. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank our guests, Jen Hemphill and Diego Corzo. That's a wrap. So you guys have heard me talk about it before, but one of the funnest parts of the Earn and Invest community is the Facebook group. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. That's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. It's a really fun place to hang out and interact with other people in our community. We talk about a range of subjects, everything from finances to life to, yes, God forbid, even COVID and the pandemic. No topic is taboo, although we try to stay away from politics. That's really not where I want the group to go. But otherwise, we talk about just about everything. And a topic came up recently that was really close to my heart. I posted an article by Fortune called Twitter CEO Says Employees Can Work From Home Indefinitely. Now, I've been waiting for these kind of announcements. And the reason why is... I always figured that having us all work at home the way we are because of the shelter-in-place orders was going to profoundly change our workforce. Now, it is possible that shelter-in-place will end or has ended already in many places and that the workplace will go right back to normal, but my suspicion is that our culture itself has been changed, and I have mixed feelings about this. I work as a team lead for a bunch of hospice teams in which I help nurses, chaplains, social workers, certified nursing assistants, etc., take care of patients. So I have very little patient-facing time, but a lot of client, or I shouldn't say that, but a lot of staff-facing time. I spend a lot of time in meetings with our staff, and these are salt-of-the-earth people, people who take care of the dying for a living. So it is a true privilege to be in the presence of all these wonderful people, up until shelter in place, I had the opportunity of seeing these people once a week. Every week, I get to hear their highs and lows, to see their faces, to give them pats on the back, to really be there for them, not just clinically because I help them with patient care, but to be a part of their lives. It's really hard to do that when you're not face-to-face. -face. So for the last two months, we've been doing Skype visits where we meet with the whole team of 10 to 15 people and we run our meetings, which can last three to four hours. And we do it all on Skype and it's just not the same. Now, part of that might be that we don't use video. We only use audio. But even when you use video, I've found that 
the qualities of the conversation, the ability to feel right there with people is less. So I've definitely noticed this is one of the downsides to working from home. There's something nice about having to take a shower, get dressed, get up every day, and drive somewhere remotely to meet a group of people. There's something about the habit, the ritual, the getting out of the house, being exposed to the sun on a regular basis, having purpose that I really appreciate. Now that's one side of the story. On the other side is the fact that I've known for years that I could do my job remotely. There's never been a reason why I had to be on site. Most of my time is spent in these meetings or on the phone or text. I don't see patients anymore. I mostly help the other healthcare practitioners. And I always had these dreams of traveling the world and yet still being able to sign in every week and attend my meetings and work at my job. It's been a dream. I always wondered how I would breach the subject. I always knew I could work from home, but there was never the opportune time to talk to my bosses and say, hey, what if I started taking these phone calls from home instead of showing up in person? Well, Shelter in Place pretty much showed us all that we can conduct business this way. We can be there for each other. We can manage patient care. We can have our team meetings and we don't have to physically be in the same place. In other words, I could be calling in from anywhere. I could be sitting on a beach in Mexico. I could be trouncing around Europe. I could be in any of these places. And then my three days a week, when I had my three to four hours of meetings, I could find a place with a good Wi-Fi connection, and that would be enough. And that's one side of it. The other side of it is I had my meetings in two different locations, and one of those locations was almost an hour away from my house. So two days a week, I was traveling two hours a day, one hour there and one hour back, just to be a part of these meetings. And those two hours were wasted. And so now, as we have shelter in place and we're doing Skype meetings, I've found that I've gained back two hours to two days a week. And this, again, is good and bad. I have to admit, one of the great parts of having those hours alone in the car was that I was able to keep up to date with podcasts. I was able to listen to music. I was able to do things that just aren't always a natural fit at home. I am a podcast creator. You think I would listen to millions of podcasts. It's much easier to do that. When you have two hours of commute a day, it's easier to do that when the kids are in school. It gets much harder when you're not commuting, when the kids are at home, when you're spending so much time together, when you're not going out to the gym to work out where you might throw those earphones on and listen to a podcast here or there. So I have really mixed feelings about this move to shelter in place. I love this idea that maybe I could work from home and I wouldn't be tethered to one location, much less to that horrible commute. On the other hand, there are just some nice things about meeting with people in person. And sometimes that creativity that sparked during person-to-person contact, eye-to-eye conversations goes above and beyond what you can do on Zoom. So with that background, I posted this article uh, from Fortune.com on our Facebook group, and I got a lot of interesting comments. Carl Heinrichsen said, Nationwide is doing this as well. That must be the company he works for. They've got a big campus here in Gainesville. If this becomes widespread, it will be interesting to see what happens to the commercial real estate market. Now, that is a great point. As we look, for instance, at downtown Chicago or downtown L.A. or New York, how much of that space is commercial real estate? 
if big companies like Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and even things like Amazon corporate decide that they don't need their physical office space anymore, God knows what that could do to the commercial real estate market. All of a sudden, there's going to be all this open space available, and what will we do with it? Frank Vasquez commented, yes, especially as more baby boomers retire. They're the last generation fixated on meeting culture and FaceTime. Once the boss starts teleworking, everyone else will get to do it as well. There definitely is a cultural shift. I believe not as much Gen Xers, but certainly millennials and Gen Zers are probably much more comfortable with online interactions. And they're probably much more comfortable without having that FaceTime, quote unquote. I, on the other hand, maybe as a Gen Xer, maybe as a guy in my mid 40s, I appreciate that FaceTime sometimes. I love the fact that I can Zoom with someone across the country or across the world and we can see each other. But if I'm in the same city and I'm at work, is that what I want to do? Glenn Holler says, my boss and more than half my team are in India. Half of my U.S. staff were working from home anyway. I started doing this when we started consolidating buildings last fall. So no change for us, just Zoom fatigue. And Glenn is a lot like my wife, who's been working from home for the last 15 years. So this is business as usual for her. And... You know, I think that there are a lot of people who this is not a huge change for. Alan Mueller said, oh, my God, treat your employees like trustworthy adults. Groundbreaking. You know, there's always been this theory that if people were at home, they wouldn't concentrate as much on work. They would fool around. They wouldn't get things done. On the other hand, what I've realized is when work and home are the same place, you tend to do more work because the computer, the email, everything is just one room away. And you're not wasting as much time commuting. So the truth of the matter is, I can't imagine that efficiency is going to be the problem. I have a feeling that when people work from home, they're getting just as much done, maybe even more, because they have other things at home they want to do. So they're being really, really careful with their time. Katie Camel said, yes, a patient told me last week that his friend's company is going entirely online. They found productivity soared once people started working from home, so they want them to continue working from home. Since there will no longer be anyone at work, they're getting rid of the office and saving on that expense. My guess is they're one of many choosing the same. And again, this is a real important issue. Overhead is huge. So as a business, you can make money by selling more product, giving more consulting services, or doing whatever you do that you get paid for. But we're also frugality experts. We realize that as opposed to making more money, you can save more money, and that could make your business a heck of a lot more profitable. So if you're not paying for that big building, if you're not paying for the heating and the water and the coffee and throwing in lunches for the staff during the week, all of a sudden your expenses go down quite a bit. So it's an interesting point and a point that I think many businesses will benefit from if they decide to change to this online version of work that we're now experiencing. And last but not least, Gwen Murs said, leadership is eager to get people back in the office, but also playing it very safe given some of the critically essential roles that have to be in the building. Right now, we're not going back until early July, but that could get pushed back again. I'm expecting more of a phased-in approach instead of flipping a switch back to normal. And this also is a point that needs to be made. There are certain types of work 
that have to be done in person. As a physician, if I'm going to be diagnosing patients and taking histories, that's got to be done somewhere. It can't be done 100% virtually. Yes, there is such thing as telehealth and telemedicine, but parts of it have to be done in the person's presence. And I think there are other situations that are similar where you can't replace being face-to-face with either your client or your other employees. So that's where we are today. I think the world has changed. The culture has changed. There are some jobs I imagine that will never go back to the office setting. There are some companies that will strongly benefit from not needing to pay the overhead. On the other hand, there are people like me who are in professions where ultimately you eventually will need to see people. It's not just the camaraderie of working day-to-day with someone, but also certain services can't be delivered unless you're face-to-face. You can't fix someone's plumbing unless you can get into their house. These are things that will never change. As always, the world is changing and we are here talking about it because we want to know what's going to happen in our lives, what's going to change with our jobs, how are we going to continue to earn and invest as well as stay invested in our lives by not letting finances get in the way of doing what we really want to do. It's a changing world and you'll always be able to tune in here at Earn and Invest and hear how people are managing these changes and dealing with it. I'm glad that you're part of the community. Remember, that's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. We continue to have great conversations there, and we continue the conversation that started with the podcast. Thanks. Diego, you want to start since you've done it before? Yes. All right. And so you know what to say. This is Diego Corzo, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast, either in Spanish or English. I'm going to give you a countdown of three, all right? Three, uh, three, two, one. Hola, soy Diego Corzo, y estás escuchando el podcast What's Next. Except it's What's Up Next. What's Up Next. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) What's Up Next. That was perfect. Otherwise, it was smooth. That was perfect. Okay. Three, two, one. Hola, soy Diego Corso y estás escuchando el podcast What's Up Next. Jen, you want to do the same thing? Sure. Sure. Let me know. All right. Um, three, two, one. ¿Qué tal? Soy Jen Hempel y estás escuchando el WhatsApp. <laughs> What's up? D- Diego, she's the pro. Just remember that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, my editor, I'm sure, has a lot of fun with my bloopers. All right. On three, two, one. ¿Qué tal? Soy Jen Hempel y estás escuchando el What's Up Next podcast. Awesome. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. 
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.